Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn there. You'll find Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 on page 188 of your Navy Blue Church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible to call your own and you want a copy of God's Word, we'd sure like for you to just take, put your name in it and take it home and receive it as uh, our gift to you today. We're in a series over the life of the Old Testament heroine uh, Ruth, and we're going to be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning on page 188 of your church Bibles. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is God's word. There is a proverb, Proverb chapter 3, verse 27, that says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. To act. And we see uh, this verse lived out in our passage of Scripture this morning, Ruth chapter 2. As we continue a series that uh, we started a few weeks ago on the amazing life of this woman of God, uh, Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth does not begin with. Ruth. Actually, the book of Ruth begins with a husband and a wife and their two sons in the tumultuous period of the judges. 
a period of time um, just after Israel finished uh, wandering the wilderness for 40 years and before the period of the kings. This tumultuous period where Israel was ruled not by political leaders but by military leaders. And it was a very spiritually uncertain time. There would be seasons when Israel would find shelter under the wing of Almighty God. And there was peace in the land. And then there were times when Israel would find shelter under a, um, an idol or a, a pagan god. And um, stormy seasons would occur. But it's within this period of time where we see this husband and this wife and their two sons, Elimelech, a man whose name means my God is king, and his wife Naomi, and her name means pleasant. And they lived in Bethlehem, a town which means um, house of bread, house of bread. And they have two sons, two sons, Killian and Malan, Killian and Malan. Not exactly sure what their names mean. Some scholars uh, have best guessed as they're trying to piece together the names of those two boys. And um, this is what I found. One name means pestilence and the other name means death. Why do we do this to our children? Um, Hi, I'm my God is king. I'd like you to meet my son, tuberculosis, and his brother, diabetes. Why do we do this? I mean, well, because it rhymes. Really? That's, can we think of something better than that? But that's Malan and Killian and Elimelech and Naomi leaving Bethlehem because of a famine. There was no food in the house of bread. So they go to this country... Moab, which was a country hostile to Israel. And there the unthinkable happens. Elimelech dies. And Naomi is left with these two boys who then marry outside the faith. They marry Moabite women who are worshipers of the false god Chemosh. And those two daughters were Orpah and Ruth. And then, after 10 years of infertility, another unthinkable thing happened. Killing and Malan both die. And there are three widows looking over three graves in a cemetery somewhere in Moab. That's just the first five verses of the book of Ruth. Well, Naomi finds out that the Lord has blessed Bethlehem and Judea with food. And so she sets out and she begs those daughters-in-law of her to go back to their family, go back to Moab, go back to their mother and their father and find a husband where they can have a family because the kind of social safety net that we have in our abundant country simply just didn't exist back then. And through tears, Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, chooses to return to her family. But Ruth stays 
close by. And she renounces allegiance to the false god Chemosh, and she leaves her family, and she, she converts. She becomes an Israelite. She becomes a worshiper of the one true Yahweh, creator God. And she makes a covenant uh, vow with Naomi. I'm going with you. Uh, Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And so Naomi, who really doesn't want her to come back with her, well, they go back. They walk the 50 miles back from Moab to Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, the people are, you know, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And that's when Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. My name's not pleasant. Call me Mara. My name is bitter. I'm bitter because the Almighty has done this to me. And they arrive in Bethlehem. And I love chapter 1. It says at the very end, they arrived just when the harvest was beginning. And that's where we see these two ladies in Ruth chapter 2. It's the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, which uh, would have been around April and May because their growing season was different than ours. And they arrive, and, you know, they get at least one night's sleep there in Bethlehem where they're staying. And the next morning, you know, they've got to (laughs) eat. They've come, and they're starting their new chapter of this life here. And for whatever reason, Naomi is so empty and so bitter and so broken and so depleted and so drained, she just, she's not leaving the house. Ruth takes initiative. She says to her mother-in-law, I need to go to the fields so that I can, uh, verse 2 says, pick up the leftover grain. Now what does that mean, going to the fields Picking up the leftover grain. That phrase introduces us to uh, the Old Testament practice of gleaning. Of gleaning. Now notice I didn't say harvesting. I said gleaning. Uh, Let me explain harvesting for just a moment. Uh, They didn't have the kind of sophisticated machinery that we have here in our abundant country. All of the harvesting and the reaping was done by people power. Which meant this, you got a tool, a sickle, and you took to the field, and you worked that field one stock at a time. Could you imagine that here in our county? One stock of corn at a time. There, it would one stock of barley, one stock of wheat at a time. You walk, and you whack, and you take that in your left arm, and then you walk again, and you whack another stock, and you gather, and when you have a a full armful, then you put it behind you where someone is behind you taking all of that, bundling it up, and putting it in a, in a sheath. And it doesn't look as pretty as this does. But that's kind of the idea. And this went on uh, all throughout the harvest season. The barley was first, and then by the time you were done with the barley, you would commence with the wheat. And this went on through the harvest season there in Judea, in uh, Bethlehem. And now... God had stipulated in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament law, since, since you know, they, well, they had a social safety net program, it was just different than ours. And this is what it looked like. 
When you're going through harvesting, you know, you're not going to get every stock. So God said to uh, the landowners, you only get one pass through the row. So whatever gets left behind, just leave it there. Furthermore, when you go up to the end of your property, don't go all the way to the edge of your property. Leave some. And, and cut the corners too. Leave some in the corners. Leave some in the edge. Why? Well, that was the social safety net program. Uh, the under-resourced, the impoverished, the alien, uh, the immigrant, they would come, and that would be for them. You see, if, you are, if you've got all of these sheaves out in the field, and, and you gather them all at the end of the day, and you leave one, and you forget one, just leave it there. Leave that for the under-resourced. We can see this in a two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24, 19 says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. We also see this in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And the rationale was really quite simple. Although Israel may be populated by landowners, Yahweh, the creator God, is the ultimate landowner and it's his property. And he wants his people to take care of those who have no voice to those who are power, he wants them to take care of those without a voice in the same way that he took care of his people when his people had been aliens in Egypt, you see. So you take care of them the way I took care of you when you were outsiders in Egypt. That's the rationale. That's the thinking. And so that's why Ruth uh, it says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, let me go to the fields. It's, I, I'm hungry. We're going to have to uh, put uh, uh, food in our stomach. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to go find a field. And um, this, you know, this was very dangerous for someone like Ruth on several different levels. First of all, not all of the fields were as, um, say, neatly marked off as maybe some of our farm country here. So, for instance, over on this side, why, uh, you might find a field belonging to Boaz, but right next to Boaz, there might be a field belonging to another landowner, and then, uh, whoops, we're back to Boaz's field. Well, some of these fields were kind of a, uh, looked like kind of a patchwork, kind of a quilt, and then, oh, there would be another landowner here, and you could find yourself gleaning and step in the wrong direction and be in the field of an unfavorable landowner, Remember, Ruth says to Naomi, I want to go glean uh, behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor, implying that she may not find uh, someone who particularly wants her to be in their field, even though the law says so, because not everybody obeys the law. Furthermore, let's say that one of these fields had a bumper crop, Right? We kind of know what that's like around here. You might have a field that had a little more rain during the growing season than another field, and they're going to have more of a crop. And so guess what? 
there's going to be more to reap and then more to glean. And who's going to, that word is going to get out to the under-resourced. And so it's kind of like, you know, Black Friday, people lining up at a mega store, and there's going to be some elbowing and pushing and shoving and uh, some testy uh, gleaners there. And, and, and here's Ruth. She's single. She's a widow. She's vulnerable. She has uh, uh, no children. And she's different. She's different. She has a target on her back. She could be taken advantage of. And so this is why it's so precious in verse 3 to learn. As it turned out. As it turned out. Huh. She found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Who's Boaz? Well, Boaz was a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who died there in Moab. And she just happens to go to his field. And guess who happens to show up the day she happens to be on his field? Boaz himself, verse 4, arrived from Bethlehem. And we can see the character of his heart by the very first words that come out of his mouth. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of the overflow of Boaz's heart, he speaks a blessing in verse 4. The Lord be with you. The, the Lord be with you. God bless everyone in this house and in this estate and in this farmland. God bless you. God bless you too, sir. They were Irish Israelis. Um, And then Boaz leans over to the foreman because he's checking out the field and making sure the operations are going well. He leans over to the, sees all the harvesters, sees the, the reapers. He leans over, he says, who's that over there? He's pointing to Ruth. Why would he notice Ruth? Because she's an outsider. She's an immigrant. She looks different than everybody else. That's why. Who's that? Oh, that's Ruth. She's the Moabitess who came back from Moab. (laughs) Kind of redundant, isn't it? But it's there on purpose to signify just how different she is from everybody else. She came back with Naomi. And she's a hard worker, boss. She's been out of the field all day. She's barely gotten a break. She is a tough lady. She's a hard worker. And then Boaz does something totally unusual. He engages in a conversation with her. Huh? He says, my daughter, which tells you about their age discrepancy. And he gives her a series of, of staccato instructions because he wants to watch her back. He wants to make sure she's safe. Stay in my fields, basically, she says. Don't don't go into anybody else's field. Don't wander off, all right? Follow along after the servant girls. And and, and look, he said, I've told the men not to touch you. Why would he have to say that? Well, because sexual harassment occurred even in places like that. And he gave strict orders. I've ordered the men not to touch you, not to talk at you, not to hoot at you. They're to leave you alone. Oh, and by the way, too, whenever you get thirsty, I don't want you going over to the well to draw water for someone else, as typically what the women would do because it was a patriarchal culture. And then after the women would draw the water for the men, then they would get the drink. Uh, and 
Boaz says, I don't want you doing that. You go over to those jars right there. That way you don't have to waste time and you don't lose any time gleaning. You go on over there and you help yourself. Ruth is just absolutely blown away by this generosity. And she, she, she bows to the ground. So how, what have I done? Verse 10, uh, to, to find such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner. She knows who she is. He knows who she, she knows who she is. He knows who she is, but she doesn't know who he is. Did I say that right? <laughs> Boaz says, well, I, I know who you are. I've, I've been told about all you've done for your mother-in-law, how you left your family and your mother and your father. You came to a place where you've never known before. And then he offers this wonderful blessing in verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a, what a man of God Boaz is. And I have to interrupt myself here to make sure you understand the meaning of verse 12 because you see, when it says, may the Lord repay you, it's not to imply that God owes her something, okay? Because God is not an employer looking for employees. Rather, he is the great eagle, who is looking for eaglets who will come and seek shelter beneath his sovereign protective wing. And when we, in faith and in trust and in hope, come beneath the sovereign shelter of his almighty wing, why, my goodness, we will receive chesed, this wonderful, beautiful Hebrew word, mercy, kindness, loyalty. And that's what this man of God prays for this woman of God. And she just says, well, I just, uh, you know, I, I want to continue to find favor in your eyes and you've, you've given me comfort. You've spoken kindly. I don't need, I'm not even uh, to, the, to the level of your, your servant girls and you've been so good to me. And, and, and she goes back to glean. And then at mealtime, Boaz kind of engages again Come on over here. Meet you. Come on over here. She gets to eat with the harvesters. Now we're not talking. Now the harvesters are not the gleaners. Okay, these are the har- These are the ones who are who are working and cutting down the stocks. And she gets to eat with. with and he, she gets roasted grain. She she got to eat all she wanted to eat, and then she had some leftovers too on top of that. And and uh, as she went back to the fields, Boaz kind of leans over to some of his workers and says, "Look, go easy on her." Just give, you know, drop some of the grain on the ground and let her pick it up or, or pull some out of the sheaves. Just, just, just don't embarrass her. Make it easy for you. Get it? Got it. Good. And then they go on and so. Now what you've got to understand that in a typical day's worth of gleaning, a, a, a gleaner would get about enough food for one day. That was it. I mean, one day. Well, very modest meal for one day. And, well, Ruth, with all of this unexpected kindness, got 15 times that amount. 
15 times. She had enough for her and Naomi for a week. It's a huge amount of food. And, 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 and she brought this home in addition to the roasted grain, the leftovers from the meal. So when she got home, it's not like she had to then roast the grain. I mean, she had some ready-to-eat meals right there. And Naomi is going, where have you been today? You know, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took, and Ruth told her everything about what had happened and where she'd been working. And, 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 then, and then Ruth says, now, I mean, uh, do you know this guy? His name is um, Boaz. Boaz? Boaz, the Lord bless him. She's Irish too. I mean, and so uh, uh, he's not, the Lord's not stopped showing his chassad, kindness, to the living and the dead. Oh my goodness. And then Naomi says this to Ruth. He's a close relative. Oh. He's like, well, Ruth says, well, she, I mean, she, he told me to come back tomorrow and the next day and all throughout the harvest season. He told me not, he didn't want me to go anyplace else and stay with the workers. And Naomi says, well, you better do that. You know, it's a good idea. You might be harmed if you go someplace else. And so, I mean, think about this. Think what's going on here for just a minute here. At the beginning of chapter two, Naomi is empty. She's bitter. There's nothing left to give. But here, she's come back from the dead. She's been resurrected and revived. And, and, and I love this. She stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Begins with her mother-in-law, chapter 2, verse 1. And ends, chapter 2, verse 23, with her mother-in-law. And as, as the camera zooms in on the face of Naomi, and the lights begin to fade, and the scene goes out, you can see Naomi's eyes wide open, and you can see a smile on her face, and you can see the wheels beginning to churn as a plan is beginning to get set in motion, a plot, a plan that will change both of their lives forever. And you want to know what that plan is? My, look at the time. We'll have to talk about it next week in chapter 3. I don't have time to talk about that. But I do have time to talk about this. I do have time to talk about what hesed is and what hesed looks like in Ruth chapter 2. And here it is. No one English word can uh, you know, adequately describe hesed. It's in some cases mercy, in some cases unfailing kindness, in some cases loyalty. Well, here it is this week. Here is the dimension of hesed I want you to, I want you to get before we leave. And, and I'll just say it in a sentence. It's what I want. It's our big idea. Hesed is when I make it my business to watch your back at my expense. That's hesed. When I, when I make it my business, when I take initiative, when I act, when I make it my business to watch your back, to watch your interests, even when it costs at my expense, that's hesed. Making it my business to watch your back at my expense. And I want you to see how this shows up in three 
characters, three persons in this chapter, beginning with Ruth. Ruth makes it her business to watch Naomi's back. She made it intentional. She showed Hesed by taking initiative. Hesed has inherent in it a bias toward action. You see, Hesed knows that it doesn't really do any good to feel kind feelings or think kind thoughts if there's no follow-through. There's got to be some action. And Ruth's life is all about taking initiative to act. And isn't that why she came back from Bethlehem? And isn't that why she got up the, the next morning and told Naomi, you know, it's, it's harvest, we need food, and Boaz's barley bistro doesn't do delivery. I'm going to have to get up and get out. We need food. I'm going to go get some. Hesed doesn't wait. Ruth didn't wait. Ruth did not wait until Naomi felt better to go get food. In fact, Ruth didn't even wait until she felt better. See, she's grieving too, and I know that. By looking at verse 13, when she says to Boaz, you have given me comfort. Now, she's not saying that just to be nice. Because in Hebrew literature, you know, we see these characters. The Hebrew characters in these life stories, they don't really have the kind of hidden motives that we have in, say, our literature They are a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of people. So when she says, you've given me comfort, it's because she needed comfort. She was hurting too. She was grieving, and, and she took initiative. She was a godly woman whose spirit had a bias toward action. And so what can I learn from her? Well, uh, these questions. These questions. Questions like, what is it that's going on in my life that calls for action? Who needs chesed from me? Not not kind chesed-like thoughts or chesed-like feelings, but loyal, merciful, steadfast actions. Because it's not enough to think kindly or feel kindly. Feeling kindness won't fill anyone's stomach. It's that simple. And I don't have to tell you that being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. I don't have to tell you that that a healthy, growing, missional, gospel-centered church is not going to get built by hammock-swinging, pipe-smoking, video-watching sleepyheads. It's just not going to happen. It won't work. And this is why the Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, We always remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by the hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Is God prompting any of you to act chesed toward anybody in your life right now, whether it's next door or across town, or on the other side of the world. Is God prompting you toward that? God is still searching for Ruths, you know, who have a bias toward action, and who will roll up their sleeves and shovel something, anything, instead of leaning on the shovel and bemoaning and 
pontificating about the horrible state of affairs in our world. Ruth shows Hesed by making it her business to watch Naomi's back. God wants us to do that too. Well, then there's Boaz, right? Boaz reveals Hesed because he, he too, like Ruth, makes it his business to watch their back. But here's where it gets interesting with him. He watches their back at his expense, at his expense. And what I mean by that is that Hesed is what happens when someone who is in a situationally stronger position acts in love and kindness to someone else who is in a situationally weaker position. I'll say that again. Hesed happens when someone who is situationally stronger helps another who is situationally weaker. To the degree that payback is impossible. Payback is absolutely impossible. You see, Boaz is in a situationally stronger position. I know that by chapter 2, verse 1. Look at that phrase, a man of standing. Some of your versions say a worthy man, a worthy man. In other words, Boaz was a man of standing. Um, What does that mean? It means he had capital. What does that mean? It means he had spiritual capital. He was a godly man. It means he had fiscal capital. God had blessed him with wealth. It means he had... um, Uh, reputation capital. He had a voice in his community and he was looked up to and respected as we will see in chapter four. And so he's, what is he gonna do with all this capital? He's in a situationally stronger position and he is going to spend it so that someone else can be blessed. He's in a position where he can make a difference in Ruth and Naomi's lives. In fact, he sees Ruth's bias to act. He sees Ruth's chesed to Naomi, and now he responds with his own. So you could say that chesed is a response to a response. In a way, that that payback is impossible. There's no way Ruth's going to be able to pay him back. Well, that's not the point. That's not what chesed wants. And so... I have questions that I learned from Boaz. Questions like, do I welcome outsiders like Ruth? Who are the outsiders in my circle? Who are the the people who might not naturally fit in? And am I willing to open my eyes to see the people whom our culture often sees as invisible? And where might those people be in our community? And furthermore, where might those people be in our church community? What? You mean some people might feel like outsiders here? Oh, yes. Oh, my. And I'm just wondering if there are any here today who even, it's maybe your first Sunday or your 50th Sunday, but for some reason you're feeling like an outsider to this church community. And if you are, I really wish that you would come and receive prayer from our elders or myself because we don't want that here. We don't want that at all. How how can I get those who feel invisible on my radars? 
so that I can respond to them? How can I pay attention to them more? How can I befriend those who can't possibly pay me back? Or do I just want to hang out with people who are just like me? Is that it? You know, last week at our Sunday Action Feast, it really and truly was a blessing. It was truly a blessing. And uh, I think one of our deacons, Chuck Dunham, just spoke spirit-led words when he came up in a very unprompted way, just appreciated God for the diversity, the the flower garden-like diversity that we had as we shared table fellowship together and and how there was a time in his life, an era, where that just wouldn't happen at a church. And this is Hesed. And Hesed doesn't look for a payback. This is Jesus said in Luke 14, 13 and 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You see. That's why we did what we did last week, right there, Luke 14, 13 and 14. This gets down to why I do what I do. This gets down to my motives, my heart motives. And if uh, this were a seminary class and I were talking to you, if this were called Intro to Ministry, I'd spend a class talking to you about the difference between need love and gift love. There's two kinds of love, need love and gift love. Need love is like a vacuum. Need love is forever sucking into itself those things that it wants. Need love wants to build itself up at the expense of everything it touches. Need love says, I'm gonna do this for you, but it's really about me. Need love. And then need love says, after I do this for you, you owe me, see, you owe me. Need love. And then I would talk about gift love. Gift love. Gift love, on the other hand, builds value. Gift love is born from fullness, not emptiness. Gift love uh, transfers value from oneself to another. Our small group is concluding a study on leadership uh, written by a former Indianapolis Colts uh, Uh, coach, uh, Tony Dungy. It's called The Mentor Leader, and I love how he defines leadership. Leadership is uh, building value into other people. See, that's gift love, building value into other people. And gift love says, you don't know. You don't know. And, And thus the question, when I share, when I serve, when I preach, when I teach, when I lead a small group, when I meet needs with love, why am I really doing this? What, which of these terms, gift love or need love, rightly describes what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it? Am I, trying to, am I doing this to try to get something for myself? Or am I intent on becoming the kind of person that gives selflessly? And hesed is not hesed until I am free from the need to be someone and instead I become free to do something for someone to the glory of Jesus Christ, you see. That's Boaz. What a guy. What a guy. He gets better next week and the week after. Well, I've talked about Ruth. I've talked about Boaz. Um, who's the third person? God. The Lord. 
who is practicing this throughout the entire book. And it's beautiful. God is watching their, everybody's backs at his expense. And uh, this is where we learn a um, word that I want you to walk out with today called providence. Providence. Like Providence, Rhode Island. Providence. But I'm not talking about a city. I'm talking about the way God works. Providence. To provide. Providere. To look out ahead. God is looking out ahead on behalf of his people, making it his business to see that they're taken care of in more ways than his people can see. And so, and so that's why Ruth and Naomi just happened to arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Just happened. That's why uh, Ruth just happens to find her way out at a field belonging to Boaz. And on that particular day, Boaz happens to be there. (laughs) Happens? There's no dumb luck in the book of Ruth. It's all the providence of God. And the providence of God says that God is at work in every aspect of life accomplishing his will. And we just need to make peace with the fact that, you know, sometimes God typically works his providence. You know, some of us would like to see God work every day like it was the 4th of July. Fireworks, streamers, sparklers, explosions, we would like that. But you know what? God typically works his way. Memorial Day, a flag fluttering in the breeze, a cemetery, tears, three widows, in a foreign country, standing over the graves of their husbands. How can God be at work? We now know God is at work. He's at work, even in a quiet cemetery. He's at work at a barley harvest. He's at work with reapers. He's at work accomplishing his will, feeding widows like Naomi. How did God do that? Through Ruth. Well, how did Ruth get fed? Uh, Ruth was fed through Boaz. He's at work through his people now. He's watching their backs. And he's not only watching their backs, he's watching our backs. How's that happening? It's happening because there will come a day when his only begotten son, his back will be uh, lacerated and whipped and fastened to a Roman cross, Jesus Christ our King, Jesus Christ, descendant of King David, Israel's greatest king. King David, the great-grandson of Ruth. God's at work, watching your back at his expense. And now, today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Passover. The Holy Spirit came down and flooded the disciples. And Peter preached that amazing gospel message. 3,000 people came to the Lord and were baptized. And it was the beginning of a global initiative. A global Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. Now the Spirit of Christ inhabits His people. And now they go doing hesed 
in the name of Jesus. We're no longer empty. We're full. The Holy Spirit has come upon us. And now we are the feet and face and hands of Jesus, watching the backs of others at the expense of Christ, being used by God to make a difference in this world. Isn't that wonderful? Well, before we leave here, we are going to be given yet another opportunity to be the hands and face and feet of Jesus. As you leave today, thank you, Carl, our ushers are going to be at the door, and they're going to be handing out these cards. They're called Hesed cards. Hesed cards, unexpected kindness. Just little acts of love. We don't want you to think kind thoughts or feel kind feelings. But you just take one of these cards. Well, what do they say? Well, you know, one of them says, water your neighbor's plants. Uh, Another one says, make dinner for a family who's struggling. Another says, take flowers to someone who's staying at a nursery. Still another is, send flowers to a friend who's been having a hard time lately. So obviously, these were written by a sister in Christ. And, um, (laughs) oh, wait a minute. Uh, Regrip your pastor's golf clubs. Okay, that's good. But... uh, Okay, not really. Um, Volunteer for two months at a homeless shelter. You're going to get a card. Just take a card and say, God, give me the strength to be able to just be Jesus, the hands and feet, to give kindness that cannot be repaid. And let's come back next week with stories to see what God is going to do with that through you. Get it? Good. Let's stand for closing prayer. Let's get our ushers to the back and get those cards ready for passed out.